Well, good morning, good afternoon, good evening, Safe Haven family, whatever, whatever time you're streaming this. Uh, just want to welcome you back as we're jumping back into our ongoing study of the book of Matthew. Um, I'm just going to acknowledge uh, right out of the gate, it is about as awkward as a soup sandwich. Um, being here in front of a camera, um, preaching, but it, it's something to be thankful for. It's something that we want to praise God for, the gift of technology that, that we can gather together, even digitally, um, and worship together. So, um, again, excited to be jumping into the book of Matthew. Uh, we just wrapped up Matthew chapter 18, and so this morning we're kicking off uh, Matthew 19. However, we're not starting in verse 1. If you remember last year, actually back in May, it was uh, May 19th of last year, we, going through the Sermon on the Mount, did a sermon titled Dealing with Divorce, and that covered Matthew chapter 5, verses 31 and 32. But within that sermon, we covered all of the verses of 19, verses 1 through 12. So we're not going to redo that. If you missed it, go to our website. Um, all of our sermons are on there. Again, it was uh, May 19th of last year, a, a sermon titled Dealing with Divorce, and you'll get caught up on verses 1 through 12. So today's sermon, what we're looking at, is uh, Matthew 19, verses 13 through 30. And at first glance, if we're to just read through it quickly or uh, with a, just a real quick look, these verses really appear to be two separate stories, two separate incidents. Um, good, useful, and helpful, but, but separate stories. But upon further study, as we really dig in, we're going to see how connected and uh, related they really are. The two are the, these two events, or, or stories, if you will, um, are in this passage deal with questions, promises, and hope that are fundamental to our faith. These, these are truths that we absolutely must grasp, truths that we must believe and apply if we're ever going to walk in, in freedom and in peace, um, if we're going to have that, that life that Jesus calls us to, the life of abundance, the life of rest, um, the life of fully serving Him, we've got to grasp and believe and apply these truths, and especially when the storms hit. Um, so just how are we going to go about this? I'm going to lay a little roadmap for how we're going to tackle these, uh, these verses ahead of us. I'm going to look at it in really four sections. Um, first, we're going to define the kingdom of heaven or, or the kingdom of God, you may have heard it uh, referred to, and sometimes even eternal life. Those, those are used interchangeably sometimes. So we're going to look at those concepts and define them. Second, we're going to look at Jesus' way for us to receive the kingdom of God. Then we're going to compare and contrast that to a real-life example of the wrong way to do it. And then we're briefly going to look at a hopeful promise that's jam-packed right here in the middle of this section. So before we dive into the text, I want to define the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. Um, in this section and in uh, the previous chapter, chapter 18, that Troy uh, dealt with two weeks ago, um, we've already seen a couple of references to the kingdom of heaven. 
throughout the Bible, one variation or the other of kingdom of heaven or kingdom of God is mentioned 99 times in 97 separate verses. And in Matthew alone, kingdom of heaven is mentioned in over half the chapters. You probably remember a lot of them. The kingdom of heaven can be compared to, or the kingdom of heaven is like. And again, just last week, we saw references to the kingdom of heaven. So this is obviously something very important for us to grasp and understand. But the reality is we could spend an entire sermon series trying to unpack or deal with what is the kingdom of heaven. Uh, theologians who are way smarter than me have written volumes trying to define, articulate, and explain the kingdom of heaven. So what did I do? I, I looked at the references in scripture. I looked at uh, where kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God, eternal life is mentioned. Spent some time studying those. I also read what a couple of other authors and, and pastors who, who I trust read what their versions are and then kind of tweaked it all and put together what, what I would call as a working explanation of the kingdom of heaven. Some things that when you hear kingdom of heaven or kingdom of God, that's what I want you to think about, especially this morning as we're looking at this text. So what is it? The kingdom of heaven. I would say it's, it's really three parts. One, God's adoption of us not as slaves, but as children of God, and that we will one day be co-heirs with Christ to reign and rule alongside Him forever. So we'll get into that part, the, the one day part later on, but it's God's adoption of us, adoption of sons and daughters, not as slaves. The second is God with us, God dwelling with us, Emmanuel, His, His nearness to us. And then third, it's God's calling on us. God's calling on us to do the work of the kingdom, to be a light in the darkness, here and now. So I, I think we could summarize it as kind of the concept of already but not yet. A lot of these already are true. A lot of them are developing. And then part of it's not yet. So those are the realities of the kingdom of heaven. So let's look at... Uh, Matthew 19, verse 13. We're going to look at 13 through 15 first. Then children were brought to him that he might lay his hands on them and pray. The disciples rebuked the people, but Jesus said, Let the children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and went away. And so we start right off the bat talking about children. In fact, this is the second instance in two chapters where Jesus has used children, little children, in fact, even infants, because this same section also takes, play, takes place in Mark and Luke. And in their versions of the story, he actually refers to them as little children, even infants. So the second instance of Jesus using little children to illustrate the qualities of our faith the attributes of our heart, and the means by which we receive the kingdom of God. And you'll notice I use the word receive because both Mark and Luke, as they're telling this story, they include this portion. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. So, so Jesus is saying in this text, to such, referring to the children, or like the children, to such belongs the kingdom of heaven, 
And then he's also saying, those who do not receive the kingdom of heaven like a child shall not enter it. And remember, kingdom of heaven, God's adoption of us, God with us, and God's calling on us to do the work of the kingdom. We are to receive that like a child. So what does that like a child mean? Again, a couple weeks ago in chapter 18, Troy dealt with that and talked about it and talked about it from the context of humility, um, that that marks the, the childlikeness of which we're supposed to interact. And that's exactly what we're talking about. I'm just going to put a little more detail on what that humility is. Um, humility is the big picture, but what else describes the quality of a child? Number one, they're needy. They, they have needs that they cannot provide for themselves. Two, they're helpless and dependent. They cannot sustain themselves. They can't take care of themselves. They're undeserving and weak. They've done nothing to deserve that which they receive. They just are. And then by nature, they're weak. They, they cannot do for themselves what they need to do. So we are to receive what Jesus offers us in the posture of a child, knowing our neediness, realizing we're helpless and fully dependent on Jesus. And then also recognizing that we've done nothing and we can do nothing to ever deserve it. That's how we're to receive the kingdom of heaven, our adoption, our God with us, and our God's calling on us. As I was getting ready to come up here and, and tape this, uh, my five-year-old son, Isaac, wanted to pray for me. And, and this was his prayer. Jesus, you love us so much, even when we don't deserve it. You're the light of the world, and this is a dark world. You want to kiss us so much. You love us so much. That's how we receive the kingdom of heaven, focusing on the God who who wants to shower affection on us even when we don't deserve it. So we've just defined the kingdom of heaven and, and we've looked at how Jesus calls us to receive it. Now I want to compare that and contrast it, what we just looked at, to a real life example in verses 16 through 26. And behold, a man came up to him saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother, and you should love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, All these I have kept. What do I still lack? Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? 
But Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. What do we see about this man? Um, what was his approach to Jesus and his approach to, to pursuing or obtaining eternal life? He definitely wasn't in the mindset of receiving, as we've discussed already. He was in the mindset of earning. Remember, what good deed must I do to have or earn eternal life? or the kingdom of heaven. He, he was the opposite of the four attributes that we just described about the, the coming to Jesus as a child, receiving it as a child. He was the opposite of those four attributes. He wasn't needy. He could help himself. He was independent, obviously. He was wealthy. He was deserving. Remember, he, he listed out all the things he had done, all the commandments he had kept. So he deserved it. He was strong and important. Again, in uh, Luke's telling of this encounter, he calls this man a rich ruler. So not only was he wealthy, but he was a ruler. So he's an important person. Therefore, he, he should deserve this. The bottom line is he was confident in his strengths and abilities and his accomplishments to earn him favor with God, to earn him entrance into the kingdom of God. And, and Jesus knew this. He knew it right away. He knew the man wanted to follow the transactional path, the path of the law, the path that requires one to do something to earn something. So Jesus allowed him to go down that path. L look back at it. He says, good. Why are you asking me about what is good? There's only one who is good. In other words, why are you asking me about something that only God can do? Jesus is peeling back the layers of the onion with this man, and it's an act of love and, and grace and extreme mercy that he's doing so. See, remember, the man is looking for a good deed, what good deed he could do to satisfy the law's requirements. And so Jesus peels back the layers even more and says essentially what Galatians 3.12 says, but the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. In other words, if, if you're looking for a good deed to do, to have eternal life, then you must satisfy and keep all the commandments perfectly. And instead of that being an aha moment for this man, instead of it being like, okay, yeah, I, I see what you're saying, then I am helpless. I, I am needy. I'm weak. Please help me. Instead of that, the man takes it to the next level by asking, what commandments? So, okay, I've got to keep the commandments. Which ones? And Jesus begins peeling that onion back, and he starts listing them. Uh, do not commit murder. Do not commit adultery. Honor your father and mother. Uh, love your neighbor as yourself, and, and several more. But the man doubles down and ups the ante and claims to have kept all of those commandments. So he obviously was not around back when Jesus did the Sermon on the Mount and when he taught us that if you have anger in your heart, it's as if you've murdered someone. If, if you have lust in your heart, it is as if you've already committed adultery. And so on. The, the man missed that. 
So then Jesus cuts to the core and identified the idol of this man's heart. Jesus identified this man's God. He identified his source of independence, his source of strength, security, the reason why he has everything under control. And it was the man's wealth. And so Jesus told him to get rid of it. Jesus cut to the heart and told him, in order to be perfect, to get rid of your security, get rid of your comfort, get rid of your independence, sell all of it and give it away. Lose your life as you have known it up until now in order to receive the kingdom of heaven. Deny yourself and your false idols in order to receive your adoption as the Son of God, in order to receive your God dwelling and abiding with you, and in order to receive your calling. And what did the man do? We see his reaction in verse 22. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. It was too much. Je Jesus cut to the man's core, to his heart, and the man went away sorrowful. And this is where we get the famous, the famous quote, the famous line that is often misquoted or taken way out of context. Verse 23, And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. And again I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. In other words, it's, it's impossible for someone whose wealth is their God, whose wealth is their source of security, to receive the kingdom of heaven. Period. It's impossible. And after hearing Jesus lay out all these requirements that the disciples rightly questioned, because they were astonished, and they asked, who then can be saved? And Jesus tells them, what I just described is impossible for man. You cannot keep all the commandments perfectly. You cannot rid yourself of all your idols perfectly. But what is impossible for man, all things are possible with God. You can't earn the kingdom of God. You must receive it from the God with whom all things are possible. And so see, this is not a lesson from Jesus about the evils of having money, about the evils of being a wealthy person. This is a lesson on where your hope is placed, on where your heart is, on what rules you, on what has a grip on you. Are you trusting in your ability to, as this man put it, do good deeds? Or do you recognize yourself as incapable of doing so? Um, do you recognize yourself as needy, as helpless and dependent, undeserving and weak? So again, while, while this text mentions wealth, I believe that within the context of this passage that we could easily insert in control or independent or strong or deserving into this text about the camel and the eye of the needle. Listen to it. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a sufficient person or an in-control person or a strong person or a deserving person to enter the kingdom of God. So now, as we wrap up, I just want to 
look at the future hope that comes from being co-heirs with Christ. And that's found in verses 27 through 30. Then Peter said in reply, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then shall we have? Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on His glorious throne, you who have followed me, or you who have received the kingdom of heaven, will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses, or brothers, or sisters, or father, or mother, or children, or lands, for my name's sake, will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. Notice in that, Jesus doesn't rebuke Peter's question when he says, hey, we've, we've left everything, what are we going to get? He, he graciously answers it. He describes those who have who've given up all their earthly securities and their comfort, those who um, have received the kingdom of God, knowing their neediness, not clinging to, to false idols of the world. He describes those as being ones who will reign and rule and inherit alongside Jesus. So how do temporal earthly riches compared to what I just read about the reigning and ruling and sitting alongside Jesus? How does temporal earthly comfort compare to that? What about the temporal earthly being in control or the illusion of control? How does coronavirus or tornadoes or cancer or relational strife or singleness or heartache, how do all those things compare to God adopting us, to, to a God who is near to us, and to a God who has called us to His mission of bringing light into the darkness and to eventually rule and reign alongside His Son. So in, in closing, in the same sense, Jesus peeled back the layers of the rich man's heart. He cuts to the heart of our security, of our control, our comfort, our abilities, and our safety nets. Have, have you ever been around someone, or maybe it's you, someone who um, maybe notices something wrong with you, but you, you don't want to go to the doctor. You don't want to have the test run because you just don't want to find out what the results are. Um, the problem's there. They just don't really want to know about it. I believe right now we are in a season of being subjected to, to a form of a spiritual MRI or an X-ray. We're beginning to see what's been there, to see some of those things that are inside of us that have been all along, our, our weaknesses, our dependence, our lack of control. But I think now through this season that we're in, that's coming to the surface and it's being revealed to us. My, my encouragement is to embrace that. Because even as believers, we can miss out on some of the benefits of the kingdom of God if we don't receive them like a child daily to sustain us and sanctify us. We can miss out on God with us, His, His nearness, if we're clinging to other things for our safety, our security, our comfort, or our control. I mean, that's, that's been me. Even after uh, the Lord rescued me and, and receiving the kingdom of God, 
If I go more than a day or two without being in the Word, I see how quickly I am prone to be drawn to other safety nets, to other measures of control, whether it be uh, dwelling on what the news is or dwelling on how can I control something or how can I be comfortable or what are other people saying. Without a day or two in the Word, I, I grab on to that. And in doing so, I'm missing out on the God nearness to me. I'm missing out on that because I'm not receiving it as a child. I'm trying to control it. I'm trying to sustain. I'm trying to manage. I'm trying to help myself. I'm trying, like the rich man, to find some deed I can do to control my situation instead of resting in the sovereign grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Ed Welch, a biblical counselor and author, puts it this way, if we don't find our life and strength in Jesus Christ, we will go from one worry to the next. So my question is, what layers of the onion is Jesus lovingly, graciously, mercifully pulling back in your life? How is he exposing what or who you really trust in? In, in this season of an MRI, what is being revealed that you hope in, that you trust in, that you rely on, um, that you hold on to more than Christ? Believers, hear this word. You and I are no more secure, sufficient, independent, or in control. We were no more of that two months ago before coronavirus than we are now because all of that rested in Christ. Unbeliever, maybe you've always understood the Christian life or, or maybe currently right now you're understanding the Christian life to having, having to be something that you have to do good in order to earn eternal life. Maybe you realize the dirt and grime within you and at the same time, you know you can't clean it up, and yet you believe that you have to. Maybe there's some form of security, comfort, or control that you're holding on to as your hope. My, my encouragement, my plea to you is don't be like the rich man and walk away because you can't measure up. Receive the kingdom of God like a child, acknowledging your weakness, your dependence, and your need. You can do that right now. You can pause the video. You can acknowledge, I've got all this junk in me and I've been trying to find one good deed after another to measure up. Pause the video and just acknowledge, I can't do that. Lord, I need you. I'm needy. I'm helpless. That's how you enter. That's how you receive the kingdom of God like a child. And as a church, let's embrace this season. Let's repent of those idols where Jesus is pulling back the layers of the onion. Call them what they are and turn to your, to your Savior. Turn to Him again who bids you come and rest in Him. Come to Him receiving His kingdom as a child, needy, helpless, dependent, undeserving, and weak. Probably my favorite modern hymn is one that we've sung at Safe Haven several times. It's Christ is mine forevermore. Let this one verse of it just wash over you. Come rejoice now, O my soul, 
for his love is my reward. Fear is gone and hope is sure. Christ is mine forevermore. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the grace of um, video, the grace of uh, technology where we can worship together, um, spread out throughout counties, cities, um, all sitting under your sovereign hand. We ask, Lord, that you would peel back the layers of our onion, of our heart, that you would reveal to us the idols, reveal to us where we cling for hope. Um, if we've yet to trust in you, Father, I pray that you would just put on unbelieving hearts right now, that you would just draw them, that you would cause them to come to you and receive your kingdom as a child. Um, for the believers, Lord, that, that are wrestling even in this season with, with fear, with control, with comfort, whatever it is, Lord, that you would peel back those layers and draw them back to you to receive your kingdom as a child and that you would uh, just cause us to delight in your word, that you would make us like men and women, like trees planted by streams of water, that we would meditate on your word for your glory and your glory alone. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.